The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Rick Hansen, is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and author of several best-selling books, including Buddha's Brain. His newest book is Neurodharma. Rick Hansen, welcome to Essential Conversations. I've been looking forward to this, truly, Rabbi Rami, and I'm really glad to be here. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I enjoyed the book very much. Uh, anything with the word neuro and or dharma in it always gets my attention. And to have neurodharma, oh, now I'm, I'm completely sold. But there's a lot of interest among psychologists, consciousness researchers in, in Buddhism. There's, there's some, what, what's your sense? Did the Buddha, was the Buddha, I've, I've heard people say this, the Buddha was an ancient psychologist. Do you ever get that sense? I think that's actually a wonderful way to describe it. And as someone who teaches in the Buddhist frame, sometimes I hope it's not disrespectful when I think of him actually as Coach Buddha, as literally someone who engaged practices himself, did not claim any kind of supernatural you know, source for his own insights, and then offered his teachings. And today, whether it's with him or really for me, all the perennial traditions of wisdom around the world, including those of the first people, the indigenous people who walked the earth, we can reverse engineer, in effect. We can study them and ask, how do you do that? How do you stay calm when everything's falling apart? How do you keep loving your enemies even as you you know, are very assertive with them? How do you do that? How do you stay contented and happy in the midst of everything else while helping the world be a better place? How do you do that? So that's what the book's about, basically. How can we plausibly, with respect, reverse engineer some of the qualities of happiness, love, resilience, and wisdom in them so that we can actually warm up the neural circuitry of that and thereby strengthen, if you will, the neural circuitry of that inside our own bodies? Yeah, I mean, that's so well put and so vital at any time, but certainly in this time. You know, so the book opens with a very simple and I thought profoundly powerful definition. I'm just going to quote you to you. So you write, when I use the word Dharma, oh, I didn't say that properly. So I, I spent a week with a Sanskrit scholar who did her best to get me to pronounce the H in dharma. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again. When I use the word dharma, I simply mean the truth of things. This means both the way things actually are and an accurate description of them. Whatever the truth is, it's not the property of any tradition. It's for everyone. So I want to unpack this a little bit. Let's just start at the end, because mm-hmm. I think 
especially for our listeners and readers of Spirituality and Health magazine, I would imagine, and I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that most of us accept the idea that truth, if it's really true, isn't owned by anybody or any tradition. It's reality that all of us have access to. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at, at neurodharma, we all share the same neuro, the same mm-hmm. brain. Is that why truth belongs to everyone? Because it's really, I don't, I don't know if you want to say it's a byproduct of the brain or the brain is actually perceiving something that is other than itself. But is, is that what you have in mind? Is that why it's universal? Because the brain itself among humans is, is uh, or the human brain among humans is universal? Well, I think you went right at one of the essential questions. So uh, one reason that I wrote what I wrote there is to try to universalize what I'm exploring in the book. And I draw on the Buddha's roadmap up the mountain of awakening, while trying to also respect that there are many other routes up the mountain of awakening, which broadly defined could be the development of the highest happiness, the the most unconditional love, the most fundamental inner peace, and ultimately, in my own view, as you approach that summit, and even along the way, the the highest um, transparency to ultimate reality, we could call divine, right? And so there are many routes up the mountain of awakening. I'm more trained in one than another, so that's the one I spoke to. And it's also a description in terms of the Buddha, as it were, as a psychologist, that can be understood in entirely secular ways for those who want to, you know, stay inside that frame. And um, his own roadmap is one that's probably had the most intersection with modern science of all the traditions, uh, because in some ways it's the most like science in that it's highly empirical and highly pragmatic, and it it doesn't rely on, on faith, really, of any kind. So I wanted to broaden it and say, hey, this is a useful map for absolute atheists. It's a useful book for Christians, for Sufis, for uh, people who think of spirituality in the broadest way, you know, part one. Part two, really getting at the heart of your question. It's a great question. It's that I think that there's only one ultimate reality, whatever might lie beyond the ordinary Big Bang universe. And second, inside the Big Bang universe, the one we're in, it is what it is. And as people of any tradition uh, become calmer, happier, stronger, more loving, they start seeming more and more like each other. And so here is a weird analogy to quote from, I guess, the book, Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. In other words, as we move toward excellence in any domain, people tend to converge, right? Whether they're a you know a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist who's deep in practice, they tend to be more and more like each other, which means therefore that since we have just one basic human brain, that what is happening in the brain of someone like Thomas Merton, really serious practitioner, or I'm thinking of rabbis I've taught with actually at different conferences and things like that, you know, who are deep in their own practice, or people like Stephen Batchelor, who would describe himself as sort of beyond Buddhism, as an atheist Buddhist, you know, what's happening in their brains must be fairly similar. So then we can work backwards and we can plausibly increasingly ask ourselves, okay, how do I get that circuitry going? How do I, you know, build up the neural circuitry of contentment? 
or equanimity in crazy times? Or how can I help myself feel increasingly connected with everything and supported by everything rather than separated from it? And that, that's what I tried to do through experiential practices in the book that plausibly stimulate the bodily basis of the mental qualities that we really value. So here's something that, that struck me just as you were saying it. Yeah about the Buddha as an empiricist. Mm. So I want to make a distinction between the Buddha and Buddhism, because, I mean, you said it's not about faith or belief, but Buddhism is. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, all of that. All these isms or ideologies, they do have elements of belief in them. Can I distinguish, though, between views uh, about what is the case and what ought to be the case in terms of values? Just to distinguish that between and, and faith in the sense of you know, a belief in a higher power or doing it because you think a higher power wants you to do it. I, I think the Buddha did not go into that kind of faith. Yeah, that's that's where I was headed. So exactly. Okay, so the good. Buddha doesn't have that, uh, which is why, and I'm certainly this is just my opinion, which yeah. is why he can speak to the entirety of the human family, because he didn't say, oh, and you have to fall, you have to believe in this, or you have to mm. eat this way, or you have to do, you know, or dress this way, or believe in a certain kind of higher power. Mm-hmm. Buddhism, you know, it it, it says that uh, I mean, Buddhism, though I never understand reincarnation from a Buddhist perspective. It, makes total sense within uh, Hinduism because there's this soul yeah. that, that transmigrates. But uh, since the Buddha also said there's no, there's no separate self, there's no soul, I'm not sure how reincarnation works. It gets very complicated you for bet. my, my yep. limited brain. But, it feels like it's but, above my own pay grade myself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so he didn't ask us to believe in any of that. He just mm-hmm. said, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing clearly, but watch your mind. Yeah. And, and see what happens. So I was going to say almost, but I caught myself, but it leads to a question I wanted to ask you. I almost said, you know, observe yourself, watch yourself. But the question is, is there a self? So you say in the book, well, you ask the question, does the self exist? And then mm. I, I love the fact that you didn't know. <laughs> you just sort of say, I don't know. So what, well. what's your self? <laughs> no, am I misreading you? <laughs> okay, so... This is such tricky territory. Um, So as you know, the Buddha critiqued the conventional Hindu notion of his time, as best we know, of an Atman, this kind of absolutely self-existing eternal soul that then migrated from life to life. And the Buddha really, he was critiquing uh, the notion that things just happened on their own. He was emphasizing that things occur due to causes and conditions, while also asserting, for whatever it's worth, that our the tendencies that are loosely associated with a particular life stream. I think of these tendencies as like flotsam and jetsam, swirling downstream that loosely cohere. Or as Shogaram Trumpa put it, uh, when he was asked what reincarnates, he said, your bad habits. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully your good habits too. Okay, in that sense. So what I tried to say in that part of the book was a very honest statement that even as someone who's really done the classic practices of deconstructing the apparent conventional ego I, by, and that's what I mean by the word self, the conventional presumption that inside um, Rabbi Rami is some kind of entity 
who is unified, enduring, and fundamentally independent, right? That's the conventional notion of a self that you find in in the West, okay? And um, as someone who has really deconstructed that and is convinced that while there are many references to such an entity in interactions with others and in our own minds, that such an entity actually does not exist because you cannot find anyone inside yourself who actually is unified, enduring, and independent. But still, persons exist. You're a person. I'm a person. You, we have rights and responsibilities. We have duties of care to ourselves and to other persons. And so when you, when you start disidentifying from this notion of a self, who, my precious, right, my <laughs> positions politically, my righteousness today, you know, when you, I took it so personally, how dare you treat me like that? Why'd you look at me that way, right? Uh, you know, when you disengage from the self, and yet you more open into yourself as a body-mind process, a large scale, I use the metaphor, as you know, eddy in the stream. As you do that, you lighten up, you suffer less, and you harm other people less. So having said all that, still, I got to admit it. And this is where, I don't know, I look inside and it really does seem like there's a kind of transpersonal essence that feels beyond me and you know i don't know i don't know that's what i was trying to say with that part about the so, so-called soul essence all right 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 i mean i i spent a lot of time in buddhism and one of the things that led me to to appreciate it but not to become yeah. a part of it mm-hmm. was that that continued sense that while rami is a construct by and large mm-hmm. uh there is something else but it's not mine it's yes. not me yeah uh it's so i, I mean, that's why you bet I mean, i'm you know I, I if i'm looking for an alternative to judaism for my metaphors i i go to vedanta hinduism Advaita yeah. vedanta specifically yep. non-dual vedanta where the the analogy is the wave in the ocean yeah so the, the ocean has infinite number of waves i'm one of those mm-hmm. but i'm just a temporary waving of the ocean but i do believe there's an ocean yep. and i think lots of buddhists have have a problem with that by ocean uh, do you mean something transcendental or do you mean the natural big bang universe uh well i would say mm-hmm. i'm not well i'm not sure because yeah. i don't know if there's more i mean every time i look at mm. science i was just watching a documentary on david bohm and and quantum mechanics every time i look at science the big bang universe is way bigger than I understood it to be, you know? So, so you know, reality with a capital R, including yeah. the Big Bang universe and anything else, if there is anything else beyond the Big Bang universe, that would be the ocean for me. But I see it all as one, one thing, uh-huh. you know, whether it's physical or what we might call spiritual, I'm not even sure what that would mean. But whatever you want to call it, there's just it's just one happening. You know, I see it as a verb. Mm-hmm. It's just one happening, and you and I are, are part of that happening, as is everything else in the universe. Yeah. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. 
everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. My sense of happiness mm-hmm. uh, comes from, I don't know, I mean, I'm talking to a psychologist, so I have to be careful. I don't want to say, oh, you know, I'm disconnected. <laughs> well, and, I'm talking to a rabbi, so I need to be careful yeah, but, too. Yeah, no, rabbi, well, maybe it's all made up and then we can relax, but certainly religion is made up. But I, I'm not saying I'm disassociated from my personal sense of reality, but my sense of happiness, I think, is rooted in letting go of my individual cravings, my individual identifications with, you know, this, that, or the other. When I can drop those in meditation, they fall away, different things that they, where they fall away. It's not so much me dropping them as it is having them simply fall away of their own accord. When they fall away, I find myself in a much happier state. Mm -hmm. And that state lasts two, three seconds. You know, that's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't stay with me all day. But that's where I feel the most happy. And when you're writing about happiness, um, I got the sense that you're saying something similar. That you you say sort of we have this negativity bias, Mm -hmm. but... We can free ourselves from that through various, I guess, techniques uh, like those taught by the Buddha. Is that fair to say? Yeah, this is the classic question of should we just simply uncover our true nature or should we cultivate various wholesome qualities? And the answer is, of course, both, right? Both and. Um, So on the one hand, when we... I, I very much, you know, resonate with what your description is there. I could feel it as you were saying it. You know, when we when we let go, when we disengage, when you know, when we open increasingly into sort of consciousness as a whole, streaming along, we suffer less, we harm others less, and we find, strangely, even if some of the flotsam and jetsam, some of the experiences in awareness in the stream of consciousness are painful, like our back hurts or in the back of our mind, we're really worried about our kid or our aunt. In a, uh, I have an elderly aunt. Uh, how is she going to do in this time of COVID? Right? That can be happening. But when we open out, just like you said, and disengage and disidentify from the different things in the field of awareness, we find this very interesting peace and well-being and contentment and even warm-heartedness. And people wonder, hmm, at bottom, does that partake of something transpersonal, transcendental, you know, divine perhaps? So there's that. And also, boy, as a card-carrying licensed psychologist with a real interest in biology and and brain science, uh, it's crystal clear as well that we are animals who have highly evolved uh, capabilities in a Stone Age brain to hate, to have greed, to resent, to feel shame, and to become deluded. And uh, we have, as part of all that, what you said right there a moment ago, a negativity bias that means that we have a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. So we have these qualities. And um, it's really important, I think, to respect (laughs) the dark side of the force. So what I mean by that is that to really respect the tendency of our brain and body to suffer and crave in order to pass on genes that pass on genes. 
and to realize that it's particularly important to disengage from our problematic tendencies and our conditioned habits of, of you know, wanting this and, and fearing that. And also alongside that, really cultivate and really look for opportunities to cultivate whatever we consider to be useful. I mean, it might be these days to cultivate uh, some capacity for patience that's greater than what we used to have because we've got to kind of deal with this plague that's moving through and it's going to be here for a while. Or maybe we want to cultivate greater compassion for other people who've you know, suffered under racial injustice for generations, right? or maybe you want to cultivate, uh, you know, more self-worth, more self-confidence in part to compensate for a childhood like I had in which you grew up with, you know, a lot of kind of low self-worth and kind of shame about who you were. So these are cultivations, wise view, wise intention, you know, the various cultivations in Buddhism, the other traditions as well. So to me, both are true. And one of the things that is incredibly hopeful is that no matter what's happening around us, inside the inner temple, in the sanctuary, in the core of our being, no one can defeat us there from seeing what we see and and learning what we can learn and growing in various ways. We can't, no one else can do it for us. We're responsible for it, but no one can stop us. And I, I think that's really helpful to appreciate that we have profound agency in the core of our own beings in terms of how we are developing, including the developments of uncovering the, the radiant true nature that's always been there. Um, it's great to know that we have that power, including grounded in hardcore brain science, changing your brain for the better every day uh, at a time when there's so much that we feel powerless about. Yeah, so Sam, that's a very profound you know, statement. This notion of agency is absolutely mm. crucial, which is why you know, just the subtitle of Neurodharma, the subtitle of your book, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices yeah. of the Highest Happiness. So the ancient wisdom in this case uh, is, is Buddhism, the early teachings mm -hmm. of Buddha himself before mm -hmm. the ism maybe happens. Yeah. And then you've got the new science, which is what you're, you know, the, the neuroscience yep. that we're talking about. And one thing I just want to put out there, and hopefully you just say, yep, you're right, is mm. that... In this case, in lots of cases, religion and science are just at each other's throats. You know, the, the, the universe is not 6,000 years old. You know, it's, mm. it's, you can't make, religion makes all kinds of scientific claims that yep. science can refute. Yep. Uh, and then you've got this battle between not religion and science, but good science and bad science. Mm. So the, 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 the wisdom we're talking about is this empirical wisdom of the Buddha. The new science is neuroscience. But then you get into the agency part, which are these seven practices. Mm -hmm. now, there's no way, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have enough time to go through seven of these. Yeah. But can you give our listeners one practice that they mm. could pick up now before they end up picking up your book to find the other six? Is, is there a practice that you can leave us with that would help shift us um, from the, the negativity bias Mm -hmm. to uh, that that uh, greater sense of happiness, the highest happiness? Well, yep, about your take about religion and science, and definitely yep about practice, and really a big yep to you for focusing on practice, which to me is the heart of the matter. You know, I'd rather read the saints than the theologians, 
right? And uh, I'm an applied guy. I'm a methods guy. I try to be scholarly with respect, but I, I don't claim to be a scientist. I'm really interested in applications, so I'm really glad you went there. I'll tell you this really simple practice I just started doing myself and have shared it. It involves three breaths. And the science in it is explored in different chapters, including the, the one on the practice of wholeness and, and also the practice of, of warming the heart. So uh, the simple practice is in three breaths, and I'll, I'll kind of describe it here. Uh, in the first breath, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. So you're aware of your whole chest rising and falling. Second breath, breathing while feeling caring. Bringing to mind in simple ways, that's the feeling not complicated, the feeling of being with someone you like, you appreciate. I'm appreciating you right now, honestly, even someone you love, breathing while feeling caring. And third, breathing while feeling cared about. This might be a little more challenging with a little practice you can do it, keeping it simple. What's it like to be with your your dog, your friend, a group of friends, your, your community, your congregation, maybe someone who loves you, maybe no longer alive, could be in relationship with something supernatural or divine, breathing while feeling cared about. And that's it. You would uh, you do can this daily? You would do this more than once a day? How, or just whenever uh, you can? Yeah, it's striking to do it whenever you want to. And um, I meditate with my wife before going to bed, and sometimes we'll just do this practice and take a little more time with it. I think it's very helpful for people who uh, are approaching this in a secular way, and they're looking for something immediately useful. Three breaths, that's half a minute basically. And to realize you can really shift your consciousness in three breaths because through this deliberate practice that takes some agency, it's deliberate, but through this deliberate practice, you are working different quote unquote muscles inside your own nervous system. You're activating different circuits, you're pulling different levers and so forth. You're, mo you're changing your body. And when you do the simple three breaths practice in various ways and through the process of changing your body, you're then changing your mind, your consciousness, and you can reap the benefits whenever you want to do it. And then with practice, you start to internalize it. You just, what's it feel like to feel your body as a whole or to feel anything as a whole? So you start having more of a sense of things as a gestalt, more right-brained for right-handed people, way of knowing things. And you get a sense, all right, a holistic view. Great. Or what's it like to feel caring? Well, you can cultivate compassion. You can cultivate loving kindness, even for people you disagree with. Oh, that's good. And what's it like to feel cared about? That's the deep wound for so many people. It certainly was for me, the big hole in the heart, feeling not so cared about, not so liked, not so appreciated, not so included or loved. And what's that like? And so increasingly, you can build up traits. You move from states to traits from experiences, from mental experiences to neurological changes. And that's a wonderful, positive upward spiral. You know, I, I love that. And I love the fact that when you talked about feeling cared about, you started with your dog and you ended with God. 
<laughs> no, I'm I'm you're right. Then the play on words too, right? I didn't. Well, there's that. a play on words, but I, I think it reveals something about you psychologically. You started with dog and ended up with God. So, I, I would I would go the same <laughs> the same route. Anyway, that was excellent. Yeah. Anyway, this we we are up against the end of of our time, but this is really fascinating. Our guest today, Dr. Rick Hansen, is the author of Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. You can learn more about his work on his website, www.rickhansen.net. Rick, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. It was fascinating that we covered so much ground in just half an hour. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.